You know, it's great with great frequency that we have been hearing about abuses uh, that take place in churches around the world. We hear about how gross sins are elaborately covered up in many churches or how charismatic leaders whose sins are known to many, like, like everybody in the leadership team knows them, people in the church know about them, but somehow they are allowed to continue to sin with uh, impunity. No one wants to deal with it or address it because he's just a charismatic, dynamic guy who draws a great crowd and he's a great fundraiser, right? He knows how to take one, two, or three offerings at a time, right, to keep the coffers filled. Last year, a shocking report came out detailing uh, the level of systemic uh, cover-up of rampant sexual abuse in many of the churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. It was a rather shocking report how a lot of things were swept under the carpet to protect those in senior leadership. Many of you have may have recently watched the four-part documentary that uh, outlined the disgraced senior leaders of a, a globally recognized church brand and the whole trail of, of sin you know, that they've left in their wake and the destruction to many souls and many lives. And yet today, many of them continue in leadership positions. Many have been hurt in the church. They've been hurt largely because God's word has been ignored. There's been an indifference to what God's word says and how God's word instructs us on how to deal with sin, even in the highest levels of leadership in the church. And we're going to see from God's word today as we open the scriptures that elders, those who are leading the flock of God, are not only responsible for the congregation, they're also responsible to the congregation. They're not above accountability. At least they're not supposed to be, right? Elders are rightly held to a high standard. Ultimately, they're accountable to God, but they're also accountable to the church. But Scripture also says that elders who are doing a good job, those that are doing an honorable job, should also be taken care of by the church. And we're going to see that in today's passage so like I said, today's message is, is family business, right? It's one of these glimpses in Scripture that not only gives us a behind-the-scenes look of how things may have been handled in the first century church, in the ancient church there, but also principles that continue to guide how things are supposed to be done in the church of Jesus Christ today. It's important. It's not a trivial matter, and I, and I pray you don't sit there today just hearing that going, oh, oh yeah, okay, that's great. It's not a trivial matter because it's not trivial to the Lord. Therefore, it should not be trivial to us. Uh, for it's important to the life and flourishing of every local church as we are to display the glory of God in all that we do. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to be reading 17 through the end. Hear the word of the Lord. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. 
in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. These are the words of the Lord. Now, in chapter 3, we studied the qualifications of elders. Paul instructs Timothy to raise up faithful men in the church that are to lead, protect, and guide, and care for the flock of God. And they must meet these strict qualifications. They're not optional. It's not that they should have some of these and, you know, not really some of the others. No, all of these qualifications are to define that person who aspires to the noble task of the office of an elder. And he writes there that they are to be men who, first of all, are above reproach. And he goes on to list a number of qualities here. They're to be a one-woman man, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. They must manage their own households well. It says, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, right? Because the home is the first place that a man is called to lead and shepherd. And that is going to give an indication of what kind of shepherd he's going to be in the household of God. It's the proving ground. He must not be a recent convert. Why? So that he doesn't become puffed up. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church. All of these qualifications are necessary because as we see those, we can make that determination that the the job description of an elder is the elder's character. The character is the job description. So in verse 17 here now, he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So Paul is telling Timothy here now, instruct the church concerning how they are to care for elders, faithful elders. Now, I'm going to address what double honor means in just a few moments. But look at the two uh, things that Paul references here, two conditions for what constitutes an elder who is considered worthy of double honor. That might tell you that not all were worthy to be considered of that here. But the first condition, he says, is that they must rule well, right? Let the elders who rule well. That aspect of ruling we talked about when we looked at the oversight uh, dimension of an elder's responsibility. We looked at elder and presbyter and overseer and pastor. These are synonymous and interchangeable terms here in the pastoral epistles. We don't look at them as job titles. They're all referencing the same thing. So we kind of use the shorthand for pastor to encompass all of the duties that an elder and an overseer does. There's that aspect of governing and leading and managing in the household of God. But how do we know if an elder is doing a good job? What metrics are used to, do, to, to say this elder is being successful in the discharge of his ministry? 
How do we know that? It's really quite simple. The standards, the metrics, the measuring stick for that has to be the same list as the one that an elder is qualified under. It's the list of qualifications in the third chapter there of 1 Timothy. That's the standard. That's the metrics. So are they ruling well? Well, what's the question? Are they continuing to exhibit those qualities? Are they maturing in those qualities? Do we see a progression of growth in those very same qualities? Is that elder still continuing in faithfulness to the Lord? Is he faithful in his home? Does he still have a good reputation with outsiders? Is he faithful in his responsibilities in the church? Right? That helps us to understand if an elder is ruling well. Look at those qualifications. Do we still see those things? An elder who rules well is continuing to hold to sound doctrine. They may have had those qualifications and all of a sudden they're kind of slipping in, you know, some, some different doctrine, some weird stuff. You start talking about all their angelic visitations, right? Red flags. Something's amiss here. An elder who rules well is continuing to set a good example for the flock of God and to the flock of God. This current CEO model of church leadership uh, has a totally different set of metrics to judge for what is successful in ministry. But brothers and sisters, that is not the biblical basis for making that determination. It's a worldly one. It's a carnal one. It's not the measuring stick that God intends for us to use. It is not the biblical model. Merely look in the Old Testament, which kind of forms the understanding of what we look at when we use the term elder. Okay? The elders of Israel, the elders that were appointed. The men who were appointed by Moses when his father-in-law Jethro came to him and saw how exhausted he was as he was judging the people of God day and night and he was wearing himself out and he said, listen, you need help in this. So look what scripture says. You know, here's the qualifications of those that were going to help him judge the people, right? He says, moreover, look for able men for all the people. Look, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. He doesn't say men who can run a successful board meeting or a large corporation or are really good with finances and numbers. They may very well be, but that's not the main qualification. We saw in Acts chapter 6, when the early church was walking through difficulties in the distribution of food to the widows, and the apostles come to the church and say, hey guys, we're, we're being taken away from our primary responsibility. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to choose seven men. And what are their qualifications? Once again, we're told what? That they are men with a good reputation and full of the spirit and wisdom. That's it. It doesn't tell us they're men. These guys need to be men who have successfully managed logistical operations for a large cattle you know, herding business or camel herding business that day. Whatever, right? His qualifications were about their character, their godliness, their conduct that reflected that godliness. But that's not the standard today, right? Now it's we're going to select men, maybe even women, who are dynamic and charismatic and can hold the attention of a crowd and are good at gathering the crowd, who can tell great stories, give short talks, know how to captivate the attention of an audience, be engaging, bonus points if they're funny, 
and they know a lot of stuff about culture, and they're highly relatable and can dress 20 or 30 years younger than their age. Those are the standards. Those are the qualifications, but those are not the biblical ones. So he says, hey, let the elders who rule well, who continue to meet those qualifications, right? That's the first condition to be considered for this double honor. They need to manage the household of God, discharging the responsibilities with fidelity and godliness of character and conduct. The second condition is this, that they must labor also in preaching and teaching. Okay, preaching and teaching. Now, we read that, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, and we might think he's talking about two different levels of elders here, those who rule well and those who labor in preaching and teaching, but that's not really what he's saying here based on the grammatical structure of that. Based on this passage, a lot of churches, the Presbyterian style of church governance is that way. You have ruling elders. It's seen as a second uh, position, and there's also teaching elders here. But what he's using in this terminology, we've looked at this use of this phrase especially for, uh, before by Paul. He's trying to give us the whole scope. Those who reel well, that is, those who labor in preaching and teaching. It's the whole range of duties and responsibilities of an elder. There may be those who specialize in a certain aspect of ministry, especially in larger churches. Uh, but the idea here is that these are the things that all elders do. So let's focus on the ones who are doing it, doing a good job in it here. Now, I know a lot of people think that pastors spend all day reading their Bibles. Be honest, have you ever thought that? Man, it must be great to be in ministry. You can read your Bible all day. Well, that's not exactly what happens. But that doesn't mean that an elder mustn't devote a large percentage of their time to the diligent study of the Word of God. It is absolutely essential that that happens. This is not what the apostles said, right? And this is why we need deacons. This is why we need those who can serve and meet the needs of the people because we have to devote ourselves to the ministry, to, to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Those are primary responsibilities. And there's a whole lot of other things that get done, but this is an important element of what an elder is to do. 2 Timothy 2.15 here, Paul again exhorts Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's how Timothy proves here this aspect of being a worker approved by God. He is rightly handling the word of truth. That requires diligent study and preparation. He also tells him later that he needs to be ready to preach the word of God in season and out. The only way that can happen is if he's in the word, he's studying the word, he's memorizing the word of God, it's in his heart. He's preparing messages for the people, he's instructing the people, he's teaching them. And as the need arises, there is a word from the Lord for the people. Now in a a situation with a plurality of elders, and I mentioned before, that is the biblical norm and pattern for a local church, right? Uh, You can play to the strengths of a particular elder. Why? Because we all have different spiritual gifts. We all have different natural gifts and abilities. You might have an elder who's gifted in administration. Well, that's, that's a strength. You want to capitalize on it. There may be an elder who's gifted in counseling and exhorting people and encouraging people. We would want that to be an area of focus for that particular uh, elder. You know, there are elders who uh, have, uh, they are high-capacity leaders. They know how to 
organize teams, build teams, motivate teams, and, and get them going. So we'd want them overseeing ministry teams of a church, and then there are those who are gifted uh, in teaching, so they will do the lion's share of the teaching in the church. In smaller churches like ours, you, you get a kind of one-size-fits-all sometimes, right? Until you can grow that, that leadership team of elders in the church. So not every elder is going to be engaged in doing this, right? The weekly ministry of the Word of God. But we know one of the qualifications of an elder is what? That they are able to teach. That's part of the qualifications. You cannot avoid that. Elders teach. And every elder must give themselves over to diligent study and attention to the Word of God. So there you have those two considerations. They're laboring well. They rule well. They're they're doing their job as overseers and discharging their responsibilities in the preaching and teaching of the word of God. So now he says, it is those who are considered worthy of this double honor. Now, double honor literally translates as twofold honor. Okay, twofold honor. Last week, we looked at the instructions for the family of God on how to take care of those who are in need in the church specifically one group, the widows. Widows who are truly widows are to be honored. And we said that honor is not just respect, but also extends to being able to financially support those who are considered true widows, who meet the qualifications that were outlined there. So we know it's not just about lip service of reverence or respect to an individual and just saying, I honor you. It's also translated into care and support in a a multitude of ways there. Now, it would be tempting as a pastor to interpret this passage and say, well, then an elder is worthy of double compensation. And that may be how it's taken in some places, but that's not what he's stating here, okay? To be shown double honor for an elder means that they're not only shown respect, but also, as we saw uh, in the previous passage there, it also means they're shown remuneration, financial compensation, financial support, so that's the first thing. Let's look at respect first of all. all right? uh, sadly, many who lead in the church have sought respect by piling on professional titles to themselves. Apostle, prophet, I'm an evangelist, and demand that people call them uh, by that name. You know, in some distinctives, you have a reverend, then you have the most reverend, the very reverend. The very, 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 very reverend. I mean, you've seen that, right? It's like, wow, how many levels of reverent hoodness is there that one could attain? I want the highest one, you know? Right? We pile on these titles because we, we feel that that will earn us or give us the respect that we deserve. Look at the position that I've occupied, which is why people love to flout their, flout, flout their, uh, their titles and their educational. Oh, I've got a you know, a doctorate of divinity. I've got this. I'm a doctor of this or that, right? And, and you hear that from some people. I have someone I know, a good friend and acquaintance who loves to be referred to by his title, even by his friends. It's, it's kind of weird, all right? <laughs> uh, Hughes and Chapel in their commentary on the pastorals write, a dependence upon professional titles for pastoral leadership is an indication of evacuated authority. And what he means there is that if you have to lean on your title for respect, that you really don't have the authority and respect that you think you have or that is owed to you, right? However, there is an intrinsic respect in the pastoral position, in the 
role of elder in the office of elder in the church. Which is why Paul says that the person who aspires to the office of an elder desires a noble task. It is a noble vocation, a noble uh, profession. Now, elders who rule well and labor in preaching and teaching should be shown respect. It is right to respect those who labor this way, who are faithful in the discharge of their responsibilities. It's a right thing. That's showing them reverence. Part of that then entails that you will submit to that leadership by showing them respect. They go hand in hand. But who should you not respect? Well, you should not respect the lazy pastor. They're not doing the honorable thing here. They're not working hard in preaching and teaching, especially those pastors who rip other pastor's sermons off because they're lazy and slothful in their preparation. We'll go to sermons.com. A lot of them out there do that. I served with a pastor who for an extended period of time was getting his messages from someone else. And I discovered that by putting a chunk of the paragraphs of his message into Google and discovering, oh, all this guy's sermons are out there. And then I went back and saw several weeks of messages that were coming from this person with no citation, with no attribution and saying, hey, I was really blessed by this dude's ministry and this guy's message. I want to communicate these things to you. That's not considered someone worthy of respect. And certainly we should not respect abusive leaders either. They are not shepherding the flock of God and ruling well. Okay, um, There was a time in the community where a pastor was held in high esteem. You think back in the day, it wasn't even that long ago, several decades back, you can think, and pastors were largely respected, not all, but overwhelmingly so. Pastors were some of the most educated in the community. Uh, people sought them for their counsel and ministry. You know, but we live in a culture today that not only just rejects authority and resists authority, but undermines it at every turn. And that has crept into the culture of the church at large. And it's one of the reasons we have a lot of the problems. Yes, again, I'm going to come back. There are a lot of pastors, people in leadership who are not worthy of respect and who have done not just boneheaded things, but downright sinful things. And they've hurt the church and the flock of God. But that does not excuse the church of God, the congregation, the people of God, from denying respect to the ones who are do it and considered worthy of it, okay? Um, so we want to reject that kind of cultural influence, that rejection of authority. It's not biblical and it is sinful, okay? But those who are doing a good job and honorably uh, discharging their duties are considered to be worthy of respect. Now, the second thing that they should be shown as honor is by way of remuneration. They should be supported through financial compensation. Why? Well, if they're supported by the church, remember as we saw the elders who are going to be enrolled in the list of service and ministry, those who are truly widows who could actually serve the church in some capacity, and because they're being supported, they now would have the time to serve the church. In a similar way, that's what this is stating here. Those who can be financially supported are going to be able to devote their time fully to the church of Jesus Christ. It makes sense, doesn't it? Every pastor wants to devote their time fully to the church. That compensation might be, mean that a large percentage of their time could be freed up then to um, take care of the church because their needs are being met. 
Today, a lot of pastors are bivocational for a number of reasons. I've been bivocational since our church started. Now, increasingly less so uh, as time has gone on, as through the generosity of God's people, our financial situation has improved. I've been able to be freed up more and more and more. Uh, But my greatest desire would be not only just myself to be financially supported fully, to devote all of my time to the church because our family's needs are being met, but as our church grows, to be able to add more people to be financially supported so that the ministry work can be multiplied. It's a good thing, and it's, and it's a right thing for a church to do. Now, look at the two authorities that Paul appeals to here to make his point. And these are two authorities that would be really hard to dispute with. Moses and Jesus. Who wants to argue with them? <laughs> right? Look at this. He cites Moses in Deuteronomy 25.4, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now, that's not flattering to call an elder an ox, but there's a principle here, right? And then he quotes Jesus from Luke 10, 7, the laborer deserves his wages. Now, I love just as an aside there, in Luke, that quotation from Jesus in Luke 10 tells us that Luke's gospel was kind of already out there and that Paul considers it scripture for him to be quoting it as the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's really cool. Now, Paul's going to tease this whole aspect out a little bit further in his letter to the church at Corinth. I want to read. It's a little bit lengthy of a passage, so stick with me, and, and we'll look at a few things here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 3, Paul writes this to the church. Now, he's mounting an argument here, okay? Because there were some who were not only denying his apostleship and considering him maybe a lesser apostle, but he was kind of being treated that way. And they were probably telling him, you're not at the level of Cephas and John and James, the Lord's brother. So he goes on here, this right here, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain for working for a living? There are probably some saying there, you know what, Paul, you're not really like those apostles, so we're not going to help you. We're not going to financially support you. You're going to have to raise your own support and you raise your own funds. Verse 7. Now look at the metaphors he employs here. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? You don't join the military and pay for that, do you? I'm going to go serve my country and fork out like you're paying tuition. You don't do that. You're being supported while you do that. Who plants a vineyard without eating of any of its fruit? That'd be kind of weird, right? Who's going to tend a flock without getting some of the milk? No, you, you expect to be able to receive the fruits of that which you are laboring in and doing to sustain you and support you. Do I say these things on human authority? All right, listen to what he's doing here. He's not saying, I'm making this up. This is coming from me, Paul. No, does not the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. See, he's using the same uh, appeal to the Mosaic law there as well. Look at this. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Is that the overarching concern of the Lord to make sure that the ox gets to eat while it's plowing and treading? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? 
If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That's what Paul is making the argument for here. And in appealing to Moses and Jesus, you see how he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. From Moses to the better Moses. And then from an animal to the faithful servant. Right? If God cares that oxen eat while they're working... How much more does he care for pastors who are laboring to feed the people of God? Therefore, he has made provision for their ongoing care. And how? By commending financial support for the elders from the people that they are ministering to. Okay? Now, it's a principle that's being established, right, for vocational ministry in the church. But notice, if you read on, Paul didn't lay hold to this claim himself, right? His thing was always, I don't ever want to be a hindrance or an obstacle to the advance of the gospel. I don't want everyone to point a finger at me and say, you know, Paul is taking advantage of us. He's just doing this for the money. Isn't that the charge when when you see a, a, a pastor, a minister driving a Bentley? He's just in it for the money. Well, they live in a 6,000 square foot home. They're doing it for the money. Oh, look at them flying their private jets around the world. They're just in it for the money. We've all said that, right? And we all believe that. And largely, it's true. So Paul's like, I'm not going to make that claim, right? But he's saying, this is the pattern. This is the norm. And again, he says here, in the same way the Lord commanded. That's the higher authority there for establishing this principle, right? So in quoting from the Lord in Luke 10, that whole story there, that narrative is about when Jesus sends out the 72 disciples to minister. He sends them out ahead to the towns to, pro- to proclaim and announce the coming kingdom of God. And he says, go out to these towns, begin to minister, and wherever you're received, stay with those people, and it's going to be their responsibility to provide your support while you're there. Now, that's what was supposed to happen. It's a good thing. It's a right thing to do. The laborer, he tells them, deserves his wages. Deserves his wages. You work at a job, don't you? Do you do it for free? No, we don't, right? There's an exchange of our labor, the work of our hands or our fingers in typing or whatever it is that we do so that we can be then compensated for that time. It may be an hourly uh, amount. It may be a salaried wage. But either way, we do it for a recompense. Okay? Uh, Now, that's not why someone should be in ministry. Sadly, there are those who are in ministry for that reason. It's not a right one. Okay? Um, But here's the truth. There are tons of pastors who are grossly underpaid. Grossly underpaid and taken advantage of. Churches run by committees of demons slash deacons um, who, when they set the pastor's salary, they set it at poverty level. And the attitude is, if we keep him poor, he's going to stay humble. But it's done to control. It's a manipulation tactic, and it is evil, and it's wicked. I'm on a lot of pastors' forums and other things, and I hear the stories uh, of pastors who are paid below minimum wage. And it's below minimum wage because in some places the pastors are doing 50, 60, 70 hours a week uh, and being paid peanuts. Well, that's sinful, wicked, and wrong. It is. Okay? And the challenge ends up happening for these pastors is that they're stressed out. 
They're always worried about money and how they're going to take care of their family, how they're going to pay their bills, how they're going to pay their mortgage or their rent or be able to put food on their table. And a lot of these guys are then forced to take second jobs or even third jobs, some part-time job to make ends meet. And what ends up suffering is their ministry in the church. And then what happens? They get canned. They get canned. I follow on Twitter Brian Croft. He's a great pastor to pastors, uh, a pastor who truly loves and shepherds the heart of other pastors. And every so often, he's posting a story. Pray for this pastor who is unjustly fired from their congregation, you know, or for this reason or that is. Uh, totally unbiblical reasons and things. These things happen. Now, in some churches, though, pastors are grossly overpaid. Those are the ones that always make the headlines, right? Uh, uh, they live in the lap of luxury, fleecing the flock. They're the celebrity pastors and preachers. And the challenge there becomes the sinful attitude that begins to happen with that kind of financial, let's call it financial success and compensation. They become lovers of money. Isn't that the very thing that an elder should not be? should not be a lover of money. In fact, Paul then exhorts and says that the love of money is what? The root of all kinds of evils. That love of money ends up springing forth from that poisonous root of greed, all sorts of grievous and gross sins in the life of pastors who begin to love the kind of money that's coming in and all of the acclaim that goes along with that. So they shouldn't be underpaid and they certainly should not be grossly overpaid as well. So that begs the question, what then is the appropriate level of financial compensation um, that should be given to a pastor who's considered worthy of double honor? And there's no set answer. You notice Paul doesn't give a percentage, a dollar amount. He's like, here are the steps to determining that. You know, every church needs to determine that, you know, for themselves, the board of a church, the elders of a church set those things. Long ago, the elders and Board members of our church years back set my housing allowance compensation, which persists to this day. Okay? But every church needs to kind of figure that out. That's what, there's wisdom that's needed there. But I'm going to give you some general principles, I think, that would be applicable from God's Word. The first is that it should be a fair and living wage. It absolutely should be. And you would take into consideration the elders' financial situation. You know, if they're an older couple or are they a young couple with 26 kids. Different needs, right? Different needs, okay? You can look at their level of education, their level of experience, right? What responsibilities are they going to handle at church? In larger churches, you have some elders that are over certain ministries. You have elders, you know, over a larger scope of a church's responsibilities. All that needs to be looked at and taken into account. But generally, financial compensation should be on the same scale as others in the congregation and in the community that they are serving. That is, they shouldn't be the poorest of the bunch, but they also shouldn't be living above, right, what the general uh, average or standard is of the people that they are serving. It's hard when you are living, you know, the high lifestyle and you're ministering to a blue-collar worker, you know, making $10 an hour. And it's difficult for people then to, does this pastor even relate to me? Can this elder even relate to what I'm going through? Because they're doing great. They've got their summer home. You know, they're in France, you know, here. They're flying on their jet over here. They're driving brand new cars every two years because the church pays the lease on those cars. 
Okay? Brothers and sisters, I've served in those ministries. I know what that's like. I know it is to serve with someone who was making multiplied times more than I was making while I was, had the responsibility of running all the ministries of a church. There's a, there's, there's a lack of fairness in that. There's a lot that goes into evaluating these kind of things here. Um, the point, the good labor of a faithful elder should be respected and they should be taken care of. Right? So that's the first thing that Timothy is to instruct the church in and the first instructions that Paul gives them concerning elders here. So honoring elders is the first thing. Now let's look at this aspect of disciplining elders. And this is important, and I don't want you to check out on this portion here because it speaks to a lot of the things that we talked about in the introduction, the things that we see happen in the church and the lack of the way those things are handled in an appropriate manner uh, where that person who is perpetrating all of these offenses continues to stay on in their position when all these things are going on. That must not be the case in the church of Jesus Christ. Okay, this is the flip side of the faithful elder. This is the elder who is not considered worthy of double honor. There are some elders or church leaders that don't deserve double honor. What they deserve is to be rebuked. And they deserve to be rebuked publicly. And this answers the question, how does the church hold an elder accountable? Okay, now... In verses 19 through 21, there's this sort of process that Paul is outlining here. It may not be as crystal clear as you read it, but hopefully as we put it together, you'll see the logical flow and argumentation of what Paul is instructing Timothy here. And and it's a process for when an elder, uh, an accusation or complaint is made against an elder. How should that be handled? And if proven to be true, how do we discipline rebuke, deal with that particular elder. Well, the first instruction that Timothy is given by Paul here when a charge is brought against an elder is that he should exercise great caution. Great caution. One of the challenges in ministry is this, is that you're dealing many times with the messy, sin-filled situations of people in their lives. And you're in the midst of it and you're trying to bring correction and you're being committed to the truth of God and helping to bring the gospel to bear. And I want to tell you, I'm thankful to God. We have wonderful people here who receive that kind of correction and instruction. You also love the truth, but not everyone does. A lot of people resist it, okay? And um, that can make elders the target of accusations and slander. Uh, relationships go wrong with people in the church, okay? Uh, Would that pastors had a great relationship with everyone in the church, but it doesn't always pan out that way. There are relational challenges. Why? Because we're people as well. We may sin against one another. Things happen, and then relationships go sour, and that can put a target on the back of the pastor where now they are uh, accused or slandered or innuendos are made. They become the subject of gossip in the church, Anyone who's been in ministry for even a short period of time will experience those jabs in ministry. I've dealt with many of them over the course of almost 27 years in vocational ministry. Okay? It is one of the most difficult things for a minister to endure, knowing that there are those out there who are, gonna, are bringing accusations and charges against you which are completely unfounded. Now, if it's not unfounded, that's a different story. Okay? I'm talking about the unfounded accusations, the slander. 
you know, the, the sinful gossip that takes place behind the scenes as someone is talking about you with other families in the church, okay? All of those things happen. Insults. I've had my leadership questioned and undermined by people who were leaders in the church, okay? Egocentric, arrogant, sinful individuals who want to sow discord and strife in the body of believers. You will face that in ministry. And a minister, an elder, a pastor needs to accept that that's kind of part of the deal. It's not if it'll happen, it's just when, right? It's a matter of time. We're dealing with people, all sorts of sins, all different levels of spiritual maturity. Stuff is going to happen in the church. And an elder at some point is going to have some criticism, some charge, some accusation leveled against them. So what do you do when that happens? Now, you've observed in our day the culture, the way things are, right? An event happens, a situation happens, and the media is first to report it. The pundits are first to report it with their slant in the story, and all of a sudden, that becomes the truth. Now, no evidence has been presented. Like, the police haven't said what happened, what took place. We don't know anything about the story and the events that led up to what took place, but they're running with a certain narrative. And what happens? A few days go by, and all the truth comes out. The evidence is presented, and it's a completely different picture, but it's too late at that point, isn't it? The lie becomes the truth, and that's everything you see happening in our world today, which is why you can't believe anything the moment it comes out. You just can't, because you don't know if it's the truth. And we need to use discernment and wisdom and prudence to wait, right? We study this in Proverbs. We wait to examine the matter and preview the evidence to be able to form a conclusion. And this is the principle that's being presented here. Because the biblical way to handle things is not to run with the story that's told to you, an accusation that's made. One thing I despise about gossip and accusations is that it's that tendency in people to believe the worst about a brother and sister. It's like they don't even give the benefit of the doubt. Oh, did you hear? What? Like you believe it automatically just because someone tells you something. Now, believe it if they say something awesome and positive. That's good. That's good, too. Run with that. But I'm talking about the negative, right? I'm talking about when something bad is said about them, right? How many people get hurt in the church that way? Something just starts spreading like wildfire. It's not even true. And people are wounded and hurt and offended. And, I mean, it's a mess in the church. So don't do that. Believe the best about your brother and sister, not the worst, okay? When we examine, investigate, and explore other things, that it may be true, but you don't know that. But that's not how we treat one another. That's not loving our brothers, okay? So what is the remedy that Paul prescribes here? Well, it's no surprise. The remedy he's going to prescribe is God's remedy, God's standard, right, which is multiple witnesses. That's the biblical precedent for how any matter, any judicious type matter is adjudicated. There has to be multiple witnesses. Two to three witnesses is God's standards. Now that goes for everybody, but elders especially should be afforded that same kind of protection that everyone else has when an accusation is made. It's the basis of our judicial system. You've heard innocent until proven guilty. Well, that didn't come up from man. That wasn't some genius lawmaker one day and said, I know what we should do. 
innocent until proven guilty. We should evaluate the evidence first before presuming guilt. Duh! That's the principle from God's word. It's the moral law of God. Why? Because God is truthful. All right? So verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is important here. Okay? And I, for reasons I'm going to explain. An elder should not entertain gossip from about another elder or another leader in the church, even a serious accusation against another elder, if it only comes from one person and there are no corroborating witnesses. And there is no evidence to support that claim. Okay? That's the standard. If that standard is not met, you cannot move forward with disciplining an elder. How many pastors have been removed from their position because so-and-so made an accusation and just because it was said, it was enough to remove them? Damaging that person's reputation, damaging their family, and ultimately damaging the church of Jesus Christ. It's a serious matter. You didn't just run with something that's said about an individual. I've had this done to me, brothers and sisters. It is not fun from boneheaded people. Now, that does not mean if a serious allegation isn't presented that it isn't investigated. There's a presumption of investigation here, okay? If, God forbid, someone says so-and-so abused a child, you better believe that's going to be investigated. We're not going to go, well, is there two or three witnesses to that? That's not the attitude. So don't, don't think for a moment that excuses, right, the person that's being accused, right? There's going to be an investigation. It's our responsibility to do that before God and before the laws of our nation, right? It's the right and moral thing to do, but we don't presume guilt based on an accusation. Is that clear? I, I want that to be understood, okay? Um, the principle often has been shoot first and ask questions later. Now, that works great if you have an intruder in your house. That is not good for dealing with slander, accusation, and gossip, and criticism in the church. Okay? Uh, why? Well, it's not biblical, but secondly, pastoral positions depend on high moral character. Again, the character is the job description. What happens to the character of a pastor who's unjustly, uh, or unjustly and uh, uh, whose reputation is called into question on an accusation that is unproven? It's not a good thing. It does a lot of hurt. A tarnished, uncorroborated charge is detrimental to the elder and to the church. What's the Ten Commandments say concerning this? Shall not bear what? False witness. It's a false accusation. That's a false criticism meant to injure, right? Or to put yourself above another or to prove yourself right over and against the truth. Here's the principle in the law of Moses, Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And Paul reiterates this in 2 Corinthians 13.1. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The truth matters. Our God is a God of truth. He does not bear false witness. We must not do that either. So if there is something, okay, if there is 
an incident, if there is something sinful that has happened to you, of course, this is not, I'm not telling you don't present it and don't bring it up. But be ready to understand that the biblical process means the investigation is to uncover, did this actually happen? And what is the evidence to support that? And the mouth of two or three witnesses. Now, that, those witnesses can be an email thread, a text message thread. It could be another individual who heard the conversation or saw the thing happen. So there's a multiple ways to establish two or three witnesses, but that must be there, okay? Only a corroborated charge can establish that something factually has happened. It's what we've forgotten in our world today. So we do well to remember that principle and not jump to conclusions when we hear something for the first time. Okay? Proverbs 16, uh, 18, 17, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. You all remember the Me Too movement, right? Where all, all these guys were starting to get charged with you know, the sexual harassment and the overwhelming majority of those things were false, but the damage was already done. Marriages and families broke apart over that stupidity, over that falsehood and that lie. So it's a serious thing. And I, I mean to put that fear in us. And that's not just concerning an elder. It's how we are to treat one another here in the church. Watch how you speak about one another. Don't un, 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 falsely accuse or slander because you just got a little ticked off because they didn't say hello to you on Sunday. Okay? I know that foolish stuff happens. Guard yourself against that. Okay? Guard yourself. That's, that's strife and discord in the church. We should be zealous for the truth. And we should all exercise caution to not immediately believe the worst about someone if there's no one else to substantiate those charges because the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, right? So do not be eager to listen to unfounded accusations and ungodly criticisms, be it of your pastor or anyone else in the church. Amen? Amen. Do not fall into the trap of gossip and slander and innuendo and suspicions. Suspicion is not a gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Just thought I'd remind you of that. Okay. But what happens then if the charge that has been brought up is substantiated? What happens then if it's proven to be true? The evidence is there. There's two or three witnesses that have established that this charge is true. Look what verse 20 says. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Think about that. Now, what's assumed in this phrase? What's assumed by Paul's statement? Again, he's not giving all the blow by blow on this. But he says here, as for those who persist in sin, what does that tell you? They're continuing in the action. At most, they're impenitent. They have been uh, privately confronted. They've been called to confess. They've been called to repent of that sin, right? And at this particular juncture and point, they're unrepentant, okay? This is who's being addressed here, all right? Privately admonished, called to repentance, yet they persist in that. Now, there's a, there's a principle here. Private sins should be addressed privately, okay? Too many things are done publicly that should not be done publicly, all right? This is where we need wisdom and discernment in how we handle things. But the reality is the aspect of an elder, his ministry is public, And these kind of even private sins will bleed out 
into their public ministry, which is why this, the, the exhortation is here that they must be admonished publicly. Now, we, we read just a while back, right, that we're not to rebuke an older man, okay? Uh, and we talked about what, what he meant there. There's correction, there's admonishment, there's exhortation, those kind of things here. But here he's saying you, there is a case for an actual rebuke here. A punishment, a discipline that needs to be meted out. And that is for the elder who does not repent, persists. We don't know exactly what Paul's. I think there was something in Paul's mind here as he wrote this. We don't know what it is. He doesn't specify it here. We know there's a whole lot in his letters about those teaching different doctrines and the, the, the uh, false asceticism and all that other stuff. He may be referring to elders who've been engaging in that. And they just continue and they persist in that. And it's time for Timothy to open a can up of you know what. And deal with that publicly because it's affecting the church. Okay? But we don't know exactly what that is. But I believe it, a grievous type of sin is in view here. Okay? Such that an elder can no longer be looked at as an example for the church to follow. Okay? At that point, that has to be publicly... Uh, uh, exposed to the church, you know, and um, that person needs to be rebuked. Now, I've never witnessed that. I've, I've never really seen this happen in a church. Normally, things happen behind the scenes, and the person disappears, and nobody knows what happened. Like, did they get they get offed somewhere, you know? <laughs> nobody hears from them ever again, you know? They're just gone, uh, but there, there, is, there is a mechanism here for deal, for, for calling an elder to account when they persist in sinful behavior. That not only is it affecting him, but it is affecting the church of Jesus Christ. So wisdom is needed to administer this type of public rebuke. This is a last type of uh, discipline, all right? We don't start there, okay? Ooh, we just discovered this. Bring him up here. You know, floggings, you know. I know some of you got excited about that. Should we do that? No. All right. Uh, but what Paul is telling Timothy here is not only ex- exhibit caution in, in, in the course of action when an accusation is made, but when it is corroborated, when the matter is established, you need to have the courage to deal with it. And this is what's not happening in churches today. And this is why there's rampant and continued abuse from leaders to church members. Why these immoral men continue in their office hurting the church of Jesus Christ because nobody has the courage to deal with this. They need to be called out after private exhortation and admonishment. And if they persist in that, somebody in the church, an elder of the church, a leader of the church, needs to stand up and say, that person is an unrepentant sin and needs to go. Needs to be removed from their place needs to happen in the church. It needs to happen. It's important. Okay, Paul's going to give us the reason why this is such a serious thing. Why it should be done at some point, even as a last resort, before the church of Jesus Christ. He says, so that the rest may stand in fear. Who's the rest? It's everyone. Definitely the other elders and every single person who observes that discipline taking place. It is an effective deterrent, isn't it? It becomes a warning to everyone else in the church. It raises the bar of purity and holiness in the church. Those of you who had siblings, right? When you saw your older sibling, 
you know, catch some heat from parents. They did something wrong and they punished them. You kind of perked up, didn't you? You started behaving. Well, when you see a coworker get fired because they've been tardy seven days in a row, right? And they, they get fired, right? You start coming in early every day. It's an effective deterrent to bad behavior. That's what's in view here. This is what Paul is telling Timothy here. When we see someone disciplined for the church, we are motivated to holiness. And it's a warning. It's a warning for us, brothers and sisters. It's a warning for elders, especially elders who may be living in hidden sin. Now, we all got stuff. But there are some grievous sins many times that, that lurk in the secret place of the heart. And Paul is saying it's only a matter of time where that's going to bubble up to the surface. And it is going to be exposed. And it's a mercy of God that, that those things are exposed. And it's a greater mercy if, 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 if an elder, a minister, a leader says, you know what? The Spirit of God is convicting me and it brings me to a place of repentance and change. But it's a serious matter in the church. It's a serious thing. We aren't to take these things lightly. We're not allowed to sin just to run rampant in the church. I served in a church like that. It is the most horrific thing to deal with and see how leaders get away with stuff. And you know what? Just the senior leadership just, what are you going to do? You know, they're going through a hard time. No, they're wounding the sheep of Christ. That needs to be dealt with. There is great, there's a time for grace. There's the time for wooing them. There's the time for gentle persuasion, a gentle rebuke and correction. And then there's a time to say enough is enough. And it's dealt with publicly. Okay? Promotes holiness and purity. You have to deal with sin in the camp. Now, isn't that what Peter said? Judgment begins where? Begins in the house of the Lord. Oh, we want judgment out there, don't we? God, judge and smite the evildoers. These wicked rulers. Yeah? We want that. But we want it here too. We want to deal with our hearts and deal with what's going on here. We want to be a pure church. A holy church. And it's right that we hold elders to a high standard. We must do that. But remember, that standard is not just for elders. It's for every believer. It's for every believer. So don't think your secret and hidden sin remains hidden from the eyes of the Lord. He sees it. Now I'm going to implore you to do business with God. Repent of that. If you need help, ask for it. Your brothers and sisters are here to hold you accountable and to pray for you and encourage you and help you. But there's a time where God's mercy, that will come out. That will be exposed. And it's a much harder thing when it becomes a public matter. So let's deal with those things before God. Now in verse 21, he writes, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Okay? He's saying, I charge you, Timothy. Everything I've told you concerning the care of elders, everything I've told you regarding uh, multiple witnesses and how to address an accusation, all the way up to how you discipline, rebuke, and deal with an impenitent elder, keep those things. Keep those rules. How? In an impartial manner. 
showing complete fairness, having not even a hint of prejudice or injustice. Timothy, you're not to jump to conclusions and presume guilt or innocence based just on an accusation. Let all the information come out, all the evidence come out, all the witnesses speak. And then, and only then, can you present the actual case here. It's a difficult thing to, it's a difficult thing to confront a brother who's sinning. Some of you have had to do that. I've had to do that many times. Okay? It's especially difficult when it's an elder of the church. Yeah. Elders are pure. At least the biblical model is, right? So now you're going to a brother who's your peer to confront them about something sinful. And the point Paul's making here to Timothy is even if it's his best friend, right, that this charge has been brought against, he is to show no favoritism. He's not just to assume he's just, you know, you know, nah, that could not, that couldn't, couldn't have happened. There's no way. No, he needs to be impartial. He needs to examine all of the evidence and speak to all of the witnesses and a fair and impartial investigation needs to take place. This is what does not happen in most places. Okay, either they do nothing or they do get the evidence and decide to look away and cover it up. Both are sinful. Look how Paul backs up his authority here by calling multiple witnesses himself in the charge he's bringing. Three specifically. You don't get any higher than this. God, Christ Jesus, and the elect angels that are before the throne of God. Got better witnesses than that? I think not, right? Uh, Timothy and all elders are called to exercise this fair, even-handed discipline in the sight of the very ones who will one day judge them. Which reminds us all here that everything we do as a church, everything we do with respect to all the considerations spoken about here is done before the very gaze of the one who will call all of us to account one day. You for how you treated your elders. Me and other elders are going to be called to account for how we shepherded the flock of God. That's a sobering, sobering picture and reality. Everything takes place under his watchful gaze. Christ is the head of his church. Don't forget that. And let's look at this last portion here. We won't spend a lot of time on this. Okay, And the last bit of instructions here is concerning selecting elders, but this is connected to what he just said here, okay? And this is why it's important. How can Timothy avoid that dreadful and untasteful situation of having to discipline an elder? He can avoid that by doing all of the upfront legwork, taking time in selecting and appointing an elder, making sure that they meet all of the qualifications before he lays hands on them and sets them in office. So he says in verse 22, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. He is commanding Timothy to to employ careful screening of elder candidates and church leaders. Why? Because it takes time to form an appropriate judgment of an individual. It takes time to discern and properly assess the readiness and fitness, right, of an individual who will one day occupy the office of elder in the church. So that should not be done hastily. That process should not be rushed, okay, regardless of the need. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Now, most scholars are in agreement here. This 
aspect of laying on of hands had to do with setting in or ordain, let's just use the word ordination of church officers, okay? Twice in these pastoral letters here, this is a phrase that Paul uses to bring to Timothy's remembrance that moment that through the laying on of hands by the council of elders, a particular gift was imparted to him. In 2 Timothy, he's to fan into flame that gift that was given to him by the laying on of hands. So that seems to indicate here, you know, in conjunction with that, that it has to do with the time Timothy was ordained, set into office, commissioned by the laying on of hands, right? Set in for this particular good work. So he's saying the best way to avoid the scandal of a wayward elder is to take time in selecting and screening that individual. You remember one of the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 for an elder is that they not be a recent convert. Why? There's no maturity there yet. It's going to take time to develop and, and mature all of those things that become the qualifications that make up the character and conduct uh, of an elder. All right. Now, this next verse is, is kind of odd. And if you notice in the ESV especially, it's put in parentheses. Okay? All right? And, and so you read this, you're like, why is, Tim, why is now he talking about Timothy drinking wine? Now, I know that's some people's life verse, but that's not what's going on here. Okay? What verse have you memorized? <laughs> I got I to go in here. Don't just drink water. Drink some wine. A little. It says little wine. Notice that. It doesn't say a lot of wine. It said a little wine. Why is this here? It's, it's, it's a personal aside of something Paul is just sharing with Timothy. And, and it's likened to, have you ever written a letter to someone or you're writing out an email to someone and there's a lot of information and then you just, something pops into your mind and you're like, oh, let me, let me just kind of throw this random thought in there. Only this really isn't random the more we look at it in context, okay? He writes there at the end of the previous verse, keep yourself pure. And then he says, verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Timothy may have had a tendency to the fleshly asceticism that Paul talks about in chapter 4. Remember when he talked about those who were teaching others to, that, that you know, they were forbidding marriage and requiring the abstinence of certain foods and drink, Right? It's an asceticism that is antithetical to the gospel. Seeing that as a means of attaining righteousness or purity by avoiding things that God has deemed good, that are part of God's good creation that we're to receive with thanksgiving, that we've been given to enjoy. It's possible Timothy may have fallen into this trap and thought keeping myself pure means to avoid you know, drinking a little bit of wine and I can only drink water. It's possible. Again, we're not 100% sure here on this. Right? But I think in the context of what he's writing here, it kind of makes sense. Keep yourself pure, Timothy, but don't think keeping yourself pure means avoiding a little bit of drink. Because what Paul is trying to promote is Timothy's good health. In that time, right, it was thought that wine was good for medicinal purposes, especially for stomach ailments. Think about it. Was their water purified like our water is purified? That's probably some nasty water they drank. I can imagine what that must have looked and smelled like out there in that ancient times. I don't want to experience that, neither do you. So it'd be better to drink wine, all right? But remember, we've talked about, Timothy was, had some type of weak constitution, and, and this was just something he should have been doing for his good health, but it's possible this, this kind of asceticism was creeping into his own life, and now, now Paul's 
bringing that to bear. Again, no one's 100% sure on that, but I think it makes sense of why he just kind of like shoehorned this in right here. Keep yourself pure. Hey, but Timothy, come on. That's not the way, right? This is the way. Drink a little wine. It's going to help you uh, with your stomach here, okay? Um, And lastly, Paul urges discernment in the selection of leaders. Verse 24. And this is a great principle just relationally. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Now, this is the iceberg metaphor for selecting not just elders, but in understanding people in general. We only see a small fraction of percentage of an iceberg. That is above the surface. The overwhelming mass of an iceberg is beneath the surface. It's hidden from your view, okay? So it is in what Paul is talking about here. When assessing a person's character, when evaluating their life, you have to remember that the true depth of a person is hidden from you. And he says, look, for some people, in some people it's easy to spot their gross sins. Like you can tell the person's quick-tempered. They got a foul tongue or a, or a sharp tongue. They're easily offended individuals, right? So you can spot that a mile away. You can see that and you go, they're not qualified to be elders. Not going to waste my time pursuing that, okay? It's, it's conspicuous. You know that. That might be true in your own life. People readily recognize an area of weakness and sin in your life because it's not something hidden in the heart. The dangerous thing in, in this process of, of evaluating someone and assessing someone and screening someone as a potential elder candidate is the subtle unseen sins. The, the character weaknesses, the character deficiencies that are hidden in the depths of their heart. And they're only going to surface in certain times, in certain situations. Sometimes they don't. But it might be the heat of trials or challenges or relational conflicts. And now all of a sudden it's like, bam, they just blast someone. And you're like, where did that come from? Well, it was always there. It's just, they were good actors. They kept that suppressed. But, but that sinful tendency was still there. John Stott writes, Timothy must learn to discern between the seen and the unseen, the surface and the depth, the appearance and the reality. And the point is that for Timothy not to make this mistake, right, uh, he needs to take all the time, all the care, do all of the due diligence necessary to ensure that a man is qualified biblically to the best of his knowledge. It's going to require discernment. It's going to require prayer. It's going to require wisdom, because it's not always immediately obvious who is to be an elder. I know there are guys in, in the past, you know, that I've looked down like, man, those, I've talked to Beth, and I go, man, I'm, maybe God sent them here, you know. Ooh, just wait a little. <laughs> just wait a little bit. And, and what's truly in there comes out. Right? So the principle here is wait. Take time. Take time, you know. Uh, but there's also a flip side to this. We should also be on the lookout for things that are not evident, like good works that come from a humble heart. Oftentimes, the person you think maybe isn't them, not that there's anything gross or sinful about them, you know, some gross sin that's conspicuous, but you start seeing the good works of an individual that demonstrate the fear of the Lord, and they're full of faith, and there's a humility of heart, and you go, okay, that's conspicuous. That can be seen. Maybe that's an individual, right? 
We, we know, we know this, man looks at the outside, right? But, but God sees the hidden aspects of the heart. Uh, and we need to wait and pray and seek the Lord and assess that individual fully so that we will know that. The lengthy process is important. It's important for the protection of the elders who are going to be doing the selection. Um, it's a serious responsibility, this undertaking of laying on the hands of setting someone uh, into the office of an elder. Um, it's something we take quite seriously here. We have had very few elders in our church history for this very reason. In the evaluation of a period of time, those we thought we set off in that journey with turned out mm, not to be good candidates. Okay? And then there's been some that have. Praise God for that. And there's one in the pipeline right now that I'm excited about. Okay? But we don't want to take part in the sins of others. Okay? That's what Paul is saying here. If you, if you are hasty in this process, if you rush the laying on of hands, um, you know, you're going to blow it, man. You're participating in the sins of others because, look, you didn't, you didn't do your due diligence. And now look what they've done. Look at the charges being brought up against them. Look at the sin, right? We don't want to do that. And we also have a responsibility to protect the church. The truth is we need more elders. We do. We do need more elders here. But that need is not going to drive our appointment of elders. Okay? It's just not going to. We need to make sure we do everything possible to properly assess a man's character and life to avoid making that kind of costly mistake that can negatively impact the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right? So just wrapping it up here. I hope you begin to see how important this is to the life of the church. How important it is that we obey God's word, the order, the design that God set forth for his church. It's not an easy thing. It's, it's kind of hard at times, right? It's difficult. We have all expectations. We all come from different church backgrounds, different styles of church, and we come together, and it's like, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't we doing this? Well, we're laboring to try to walk this kind of things out, and it's not easy. And it's not easy, but it's important. I come back to what I said at the beginning. The church exists to manifest, to display the glory of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We exist for that purpose. So we have to pay attention to God's design for his church. So pray for us. Pray for me. I need a lot of wisdom. I need discernment. Okay? We, we, we want to follow these things. Having pastors who are respected and financially provided for, being cautious with charges and criticism, publicly rebuking errant elders, exercising discernment in the selection of elders and leaders is about the end goal of upholding the glory of God and the truth of His Word. These matters are not trivial. They're not trivial to God. Every single one of you here should care about this. Every single one of us here should be concerned about this, praying about this, being part of whatever this process is all about. And we can't possibly address in our time together all of the nuances to this, but I'd be happy to entertain any questions or any you know, concerns you have about anything here. I'm going to close with Acts 20, 28, one we've spoken of quite a bit here in this series. Paul, to the elders of the church at Ephesus, pay careful attention to the flock of God, 
to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Jesus is the head of his church. Jesus purchased the church by his blood. So every single one of us, brothers and sisters, have a responsibility before God, how we conduct ourselves in the household of God and what we do for the glory of God and the fame of our Lord Jesus Christ.